Well, good morning to you. Good to see you in God's house. And my richest prayer is that God will bless you today and he'll speak to you each and every one individually. You know, over the years of ministry, uh, I spent many hours in hospitals and homes and even in jails. Yes, not myself in jail, but I've gone to jail with people who are there. And uh, these people oftentimes face some very, very serious and very difficult situations. And uh, sometimes it may be helping people face some loss, maybe sometimes some sickness, perhaps even some adverse situation of their own making or not of their own making. And so I never know sometimes what I'm going to face when I walk in there, but I usually know that it's going to be difficult. And so that's, the, that's uh, what happens in life, isn't it? It is times like this that the truth of the sovereignty of God brings help and hope. I mean, what do you say to a person? What do you say to a person who's just really totally devastated by some kind of tragedy or some kind of loss? You know, words just don't seem adequate at times like that. And so this is where the sovereignty of God comes in. The truth of the sovereignty of God tells us that our holy, just, and good, and loving God is in control of everything and everyone in every moment, in every moment. And that's why it is so comforting. That is why it's so important that we cover the sovereignty of God in helping us to behold our God. This was just part of a small series, a small series that started off by telling us how important it was that we know our God. A series that took us into what is the holiness of God, not just the absence of sin, but really the transcendence of God, where he is truly different than anything and uh, anybody. And so this became very important to us. And we talked about uh, the wrath of God, and this became a momentous occasion for some. I had people come up to me and said, you never, never heard about the wrath of God. We always hear about the love of God, but we never hear much about the wrath of God. And so this, uh, these people, were uh, God used it to touch their lives, and we're so thankful for that. But today we want to wrap this series, this short series up, and we'll talk about the sovereignty of God. And this is not an easy uh, subject to understand. It's not something uh, that can be easily digested at just one sitting, but I hope that you'll be able to get the major points. Now, you'll notice something different on the PowerPoints. And that is that when you do systematic theology, when you do a study like this, you go to different parts of the Bible. And sometimes people just say, I can't keep up. I can't keep up, even though you flash it on the screen. So to prevent PowerPoint panic, okay, to prevent PowerPoint panic, there will be no coming in and going out. It'll just be one slide up there the whole time with all of the information on it. And so you can take your time, write it down, read it, digest it okay so i just wanted to warn you ahead of time the machine's not broken the computer's not broken the operator's not asleep at the wheel okay this is the way the slides are being made all right so let's get into this right away perhaps one of the easiest ways to approach this uh topic or one of the ways to touch is what is ask ourselves several questions first one is what does the sovereignty of god mean what is its meaning okay And to do this, you really have to go to how God sees it and how man sees it. So let's start with how God sees it. To God, God, his sovereignty is clear and absolute. It is clear and it is absolute. In fact, when the Bible uses the word sovereign or sovereignty, it actually means the principal or the chief or supreme. 
It actually means that the, the one that this is describing is first in position and first in power. All right? There's no other first. There's no one above this person. This one is first in every category. So that's uh, one meaning that is helpful. The next one is that it means that God rules everything and everyone. If you look at Psalms 103, Psalms 103:19, it says, The Lord hath established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. All right? And so this is where we get this idea of God's ruling over everything and everyone. In fact, if we had time, we could actually go to other parts of the Bible and we could see that God has control over nature, as Psalms 135 tells us, that God has control over nations and their destiny in Job chapter 12. But also we could find in the Bible that God even has control over our times, our appointed times and places we live. I was fascinated by that one. If you look at Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, you'll see this. I mean, Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, verse 25 and 26. And this is what it says there. Not is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. Whoops, I'm sorry. And 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 breath and all things. So it is God who determines these things. It is God who has that kind of clout. And so we're so thankful for all of that. It also means that God does whatever he pleases. God does whatever he pleases. If you look at Psalms 115, Psalms 115, verse 3, it says there, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Now, imagine this for just a moment. Imagine this for a moment. God is in control of everything, and he also does what he pleases. Now, there's not much wiggle room in there, right? (laughs) There's not much wiggle. There's not much doubt as to what God is trying to say. That's why we say to God, his sovereignty is clear and absolute, Now, this much we probably are already in with. We probably said, yeah, I already heard that before. But have you heard this part? God's sovereignty also includes God fulfilling his plans and purposes. God has a plan and purpose. The chief plan of the chief intention of which is to bring glory to himself, is to bring glory to himself. So when you and I are seeing God's plans and purposes being unfolded, what is the end point? The end point is that in the end, God will be glorified. Well, how do we know this is true? For example, if you go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, you see that God has a plan and purpose for his creation. It's, a cost, uh, it's uh, alluded to in the counsel of his will. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will or after his plans. You see? 
So God is busy working out his plans and his purposes. And he is in complete control of these plans and purposes. He hasn't delegated this. It is he himself. He is the hands-on conductor. He is the hands-on manager of what this, how this plan is being executed. Look at Psalms 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deeps. And that's comforting, isn't it? That God is the one who has this plan and God is the one who is managing it and executing it. Also, God's plan intends to bring glory to God. This is found in many parts of the Bible, but one place that's quite striking is Psalms chapter 86, verses 8 through 10. There is no one like you among the the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. And what? And they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. And so as God begins to work out his plan, he is fully focused. He is intent. He is laser-like. And he says, at the end of all of this stuff, at the end of all of these events, at the end of all these situations, God will be glorified. And then, what do we have a part in this? Yes, we do. We are, God has a plan and purpose that involves us. That involves us. In other words, he involves us as uh as real participants in his plans and purposes to bring glory to himself. Well, how do we know that? Some familiar verses to you would be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20. 6 verse 20. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And then as to add some substance to that as well, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Verse 30 and uh, uh, 31, it says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? The glory of God. So God has this plan that he is working out. The intent of which is to bring glory to him. And guess what? You and I are part of that plan. We have a piece of the action, so to speak. We are definitely major players in this plan that God has. And all of this is under God's sovereign will. If you had to summarize this, I found this one quote, and there was no author to credit, but it says this. The sovereignty of God means that he has total control of all things, past, present, and future. Nothing happens that is out of his knowledge and control. All things are either caused by him or allowed by him for his own purposes and through his perfect will and timing. He is the only omnipotent ruler of the universe and is sovereign in creation, providence, and redemption. You know, you hear something like that. What is your response? Is it a gigantic... Oh, yeah, right. Okay, very good. You know, is it one of those? Or is it something like this that's expressed by Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 36? Romans chapter 11, verse 36. This is what Paul had to say 
as he explored this whole realm of the sovereignty of God. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You see, that puts a whole different, a whole different uh, read on this business of the sovereignty of God. It is totally a massive endeavor by God. Whatever God causes to happen or allows to happen is intended to fulfill his perfect plans and purposes, which is to glorify himself. That is part of the meaning of uh, the uh, sovereignty of God to God. Now, what about to man? What about to you and to me? What does the sovereignty of God mean? Well, the sovereignty of God is a problem. <laughs> it's a real problem. Why is it a problem? Okay, first of all, because it's an affront to man's desire to be in control. One time I was on an airplane, okay, going home, and we hit some turbulence. And so the pilot comes on the soothing voice and saying, strap on, you know, please be seated, put on your seatbelts. We're discontinuing all food service. We're going to hit some turbulence in a while, but don't worry. We got it under control, and uh, we'll get through it just fine, you know. And so... Sure enough, we hit the turbulence and the plane was just going, you know, all kinds of stuff. And we were so glad we were strapped in and everything like that. And then uh, and, and then we got through it and everything was calm. And then I was looking over at the passenger next to me and boy, he was upset. He was upset. I said, why are you upset? We made it through. You know, that was what I was thinking. And he says, because I don't like being out of control. I like being in control. And he says, I don't trust pilots. I don't trust. And he went on and on. He had this huge list. And he says, I like to be in control. You see, and I think that typifies a lot of us human beings. We want to be in control or we think we're in control. And that's when we are most happy. But the Bible comes right out and says that God is in control. And that is an affront to man. Man just says, no way. I don't want any of that to happen. Also, to man, it's a problem because it's a contradiction of two equally valid truths. It is a contradiction or a seeming contradiction of two equally valued truths. If God is fully in control, then how can man truly make a free choice? If man is in control of his life, then how can God say he is in control? See, it doesn't make sense, right? Either one or the other is true and the other one can't be, right? Aha, this is what we're going to find out, all right? This is what the theologians or what the philosophers call an antinomy, antinomy, all right? And this means it's two apparently equally valid truths running parallel to each other. They're equally valid. And that's what happens in the Bible. That's what happens in the Bible. Both the sovereignty of God and the free will of man are both taught in the Bible, it's like parallel tracks, okay? But then man says, hey, that can't be true. They both can't be true, all right? Have you ever thought about that? I've thought about it, all right? I'll tell you what happened after I thought about it. But this is what happened. You got these two parallel truths. Now, it can be reconciled. It can be reconciled, okay? All the, all the pastors, all the theologians, all the seminary students that are now taking a deep breath. What's the pastor going to say? You know, it can be reconciled. It can be re- reconciled if we, um, if we resist thinking 
that just because man can't reconcile something, it doesn't exist or can't be true. You've got to start there. You've got to start there. Okay? Do you guys know everything? Do I know everything? Of course not. All right? But I accept things and I move, move on. Okay? And so what happens here is that it can't be reconciled if just because we don't understand it or just because it doesn't make sense to us, we can't say it doesn't exist. Okay? We can't say that. All right? So we have to resist that. Secondly, we have to resist the temptation to accept one of the truths at the expense of rejecting the other one. All right? So if we say, I'm a sovereignty of God person, and the other guy sits on the other room, and I am, you know, the free will of man guy. You know, it's, it's, it's well, in the United States, we had a beer commercial that said, you know, uh, more taste, le- you know, less filling, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And people were on both sides of the stick, you know, they'd be yelling at each other. And so we have people today yelling at each other. And they say to themselves, sovereignty of God. Other people say, free will of man. You know, you can't have both together. No way. Not possible. And so this goes on and on. Charles Ryrie, one of our professors at Dallas Seminary, said this. Sovereignty must not obliterate free will. And free will must never dilute sovereignty. They are both valid and they are both operational. So, so, how do we bring the two together? We reconcile the two by accepting, uh, by accepting and exercising our faith that what cannot be reconciled in man's mind is harmonized in God's mind. Okay? God is in control, right? And it's important, as long as he got it straight, we're okay. <laughs> okay? As long as God's got it straight, we're okay. And God has both of these truths well in control, well op- uh, operating very well, thank you, you see. And that's where it starts. But it takes us to exercise faith in this God. Who is this God? Romans chapter 11, verse 33 to 34. It says this, Oh, the depth and the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? It says, it says God is different, y'all. And God's mind, if he's got it harmonized and he's got it all reconciled, that's all we need. That's all we need. That's where it took me. That's where it took me. So I was looking around and I was trying to find somebody who maybe also had the same kind of experience. And guess what? I fell on Chuck's, on Charles Swindoll, on Charles Swindoll. And this is what he had to say about this. The finite can never plumb the depths of the infinite. It was a glorious day when I was freed from fearing, from fear of saying, I don't understand the reasons why, but I accept God's hand in what has happened. It was a greater day when I realized that nobody expected me to have all the answers, least of all God. He wants my unreserved love, my unqualified devotion, my undaunted trust, not my analysis of him and his ways. Whoa! Was that comforting or what? You know, was that comforting or what? God doesn't always expect us to analyze what he does and what he thinks 
and come to agreement with it or even complete understanding of it. He just says for us, trust me, love me, follow me. Why? That really hit home. That really hit home. The problem of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man can only be resolved by faith in our holy and just God and who has both of these truths in complete harmony. In complete harmony. But that doesn't sell it because the sovereignty of God also means that it touches parts of our lives. And how does the sovereignty of God touch our lives? Okay. And I, you know, there was a wealth of things to talk about, but I only have time to maybe address three. And I hope that somewhere out there that God led this process and that God would be speaking to you through this. One of them is the questions about the origin and existence of sin. The origin and existence of sin. We, we give the fact that God is sovereign, okay? But we also say, well, there's sin here, okay? So the question is, is God the author of sin? Is God the author of sin? Because it wouldn't exist otherwise, right? Unless he created it. Or is that true? Look at Psalms chapter 5, verse 4. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4. Did God create sin? No. Psalms chapter 5, verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. God does not have anything to do with evil. He doesn't want to send other than uh, his role of controlling it. He, do, he did not create sin. In fact, what he does is he communicates clearly his timeless, perfect moral law to uh, all mankind. In Psalms 119, verse 160, it says this. Psalms 119, verse 160. It says, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances, or your law, is everlasting. It is timeless. It is timeless. It is perfect in every way. And he communicates that to man. And then God gives man the freedom to voluntarily choose to follow God's timeless, perfect uh, moral law. In fact, he even encourages them to do so. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 28, be careful to listen to all these words which I command you, so that it may be well with you and your sons after you forever. For you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. He encourages us. He says, look, look, I'm giving you the perfect moral law. It's coming right from me. And he says, I encourage you to follow it so that it may all go well with you and generations to follow. But he wants us to follow these things, not out of just mere will or mere, uh, uh, you know, uh, effort, human effort, but out of love. If you look at John chapter 14, verse 21, John chapter 14, verse 21, it says this. It says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him. And will disclose myself to him. See we obey God's law. Not out of ritual. We do not do it out of sheer duty. We do it out of a heart of love for God. And that's what, that's, that's what God wants us to do. Yes God provided the opportunity for sin. But he didn't create sin. 
So then, what is, why did God permit sin? Why did he permit it to be around? Why not just wipe it out and then you solve all your problems? You don't have a sin question at all. Well, God does give us some reasons. I can't go over all of them. But one of those that stand out is God allows sin to exist so his perfections can be seen. His perfections can be seen. For example, if you look at Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. We read these words. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was the fact that we were such great sinners in great peril, in great danger of being eternally separated from this awful thing called sin, that we see the love of God being extended to us. You see, we wouldn't be able to see that, right? And there's other places in the Bible where his grace is seen, where his holiness is seen, where his ability to control that which is evil is seen. And all of these things show something about God. So there's something about God. So God allows sin to exist so his perfections can be seen. Secondly, God allows sin to exist so that we can see that he is in control, that he is in control. If you look at Job, Job chapter 42. You guys know the story of Job. And you know how much he went through. You know all the terrible things that happened to him. And he didn't even know why it was happening to him. That was even more, you know, devastating. You know, God, I walk with you. And suddenly all these awful things are happening to me. You know, I have no idea what's going on here. At the end of it, he says this in chapter 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things. And no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You see, that was the lesson that Job had to learn. Those are one of the many lessons Job learned was that no matter how bad it got, no matter how bad it got, that God was in control. And that was one of the big lessons that that came forth. He was not to sit there and question God, but allow God to lead the way and make let it happen. In the Bible, we have many instances where God is control over Uh, sin sometimes he restrains man from doing the evil he wants to do sometimes does that my life does he do that in your life sometimes the the little voice pops in your head ah you better not do that you know god's speaking to us sometimes god permits sin to take its course sometimes god just says well you are so intent on doing this and nothing i'm going to say stop you be my guest and reap the consequences Sometimes God does that too, doesn't he? But then sometimes God determines the limits to which evil and its effects may go. We saw this in Job. We saw this in Job. When God was talking to him in the first chapter of Job, he said, Satan, yes, you can go after Job, but you can't take his life. You can't kill him. You can do all these other awful things to him, but you can't kill him. You see? And so God will control evil. He will control sin. Perhaps sin may be wrecking havoc in your life today. Thank God that evil is not all as powerful as it seems to be and that it is still under God's control. That it is still under God's control. While not the author of sin, God permits it to exist so that his attributes are more sharply seen and to show that nothing can operate outside his control. So that's one question that comes up. Another question that comes up that affects our lives is this 
And it's questions about the existence and purpose of suffering. The existence and purpose of suffering. Is it not true? God does allow bad things to happen to people. Right? Nod your head. Nod your head if you agree. Some of you are, are almost there. All right? <laughs> so, <laughs> that God does allow bad things to happen. Why would a good and loving God allow us to go through such things as the death of a loved one or disease or injury to ourselves or someone else we know and allow people to go through financial hardships, worry and fear? Why does God allow all of this suffering? I mean, he's a sovereign God. One word from him and it's gone, right? Why? 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 We keep asking ourselves that question. Well, the Bible does tell us that one reason is that suffering can be a result of sinful choices to obey, to disobey God's moral law. Okay? Maybe of our own doing or maybe perhaps the doing of someone else. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 to 8. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 to 8 says this. It says in verses 7 through 8, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so you could probably say that this messed up world that we're in, where there is a lot of suffering, is due to the sinful choices that people make when they break God's law. One author that I read says, the world is the way it is because we are the way we are. <laughs> Did you hear that? Did you hear that? I thought it was a really clever statement. Okay, let me read it one more time. The world is the way it is because we are the way we are. Okay? We are the ones who take responsibility. Okay? Suffering also can be the result of Satan's activities. Now, this would be in Job chapter 1. We know that. That Satan's actively working. And he's not going to let us just sit around and be comfortable. Okay? He's going to just needle us. He's going to push us. He's going to try and persuade us in a certain way. And he has his devices, and he has his favorite uh, methods. So, uh, uh, some of the suffering can be uh, attributed to the uh, activities of Satan. Suffering can be a form of loving discipline, of loving discipline. Where do we see this? If you turn to Isaiah, I mean, uh, Psalms chapter 119, Psalms 119. And if you were to look at verse 67, 71 and 75, you will take you will see David on a journey. David is on a journey. And he and these verses, these three verses kind of are the marker points for that journey. So Psalms 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. I went astray and suddenly started suffering. But now I keep your word. Hey, I'm back on track. Verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I may learn your statutes. That I may learn your statutes. Verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous. And that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So, 
suffering can actually be a tool that God uses as a, uh, uses as a form of loving discipline. When we go astray, God puts the affliction upon us. Why? So that we can come back to God. We can come back and learn the things and know the things that we ought to. Suffering also can be a tool for God to produce something good in each of us. You're very familiar with the passage in James chapter 1 in which he, he hails the, the, the goodness of trials and tribulations. If you look at James chapter 1, uh, starting with verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you can encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result. So what? So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So why does God allow suffering? It's so that God can do something good in us. He can produce something good in us. You may be going through a horrendous amount of suffering. I I don't know, okay? I don't know. Some people I know, but I, I don't know the great majority here. Whether you know the reason or not, remember, remember the words of Psalms 18, verse 30. This God, His way is perfect. And He's working out His perfect plan. Hence, trust whatever He does, whatever He allows. This is tough and sometimes seems impossible to do because we can't possibly know the mind of God, why he does things. Isaiah chapter 55. But our responsibility is to obey him, trust him, and submit to his will. Okay? So as you begin to march through this, you begin to see, you know, you know, there is some purpose behind this suffering. There is a reason that all this is going on. And so we can have these in mind. Now, the last question I think that's important is this one, is the question of our salvation. If God is absolutely sovereign, then believers deserve no credit for their salvation and have no real say or real choice in the matter of their salvation. True? Hmm. Okay. This is that sovereignty of God and free will thing again, you see. And so sovereignty of God and salvation is taught. God truly does determine who will be saved. What are some evidences of that? Well, if you look at the various phrases and words that use the Bible uses repeatedly to describe believers, you'll see that it has this idea of God's choosing. For example, Ephesians chapter 1. The word predestined shows up. Colossians chapter 3, the word chosen shows up. And the the one that was chosen by our song leaders, it uses the word, you were chosen by God. All right? And then also in Romans chapter 8, verse 33, you called God's elect. Now, it seems pretty apparent that God chooses and determines who will be saved. Well, then the question comes, God is unfair. Why does he get to pick? Why does he get to pick? Well, the Apostle Paul anticipated this argument, and this is what he says. And I can't do better than Paul, all right? I mean, I can sit up here and try to razzle-dazzle you with all kinds of philosophical arguments. But let's just go back to what the Apostle Paul said. When confronted with this whole question about you know, the fairness of God choosing one thing, one person to, over another, to bless one person and not the other, okay, this is what Paul had to say. 
in Romans chapter 9, starting with verse 20. And he says, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me this way, will it? Or or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? He says, it's God's right. It's God's right. He's our creator. Okay? It's his right. Now, I know that really makes you feel uncomfortable. It made me feel uncomfortable. But it's true. God is sovereign. He does what he pleases, right? Okay? And he has that right, being our creator. The responsibility of man to choose salvation is also taught. Man must choose. John 3.16. John 3.16 tells us this. The last time I looked, the word believe was a verb there, and it means choice, exercising a choice. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him... Or whoever chooses to believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Okay? So man can, God does choose. Man can choose also if he will take up the offer. Both of them are parallel truths that work hand in hand. If that wasn't enough, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man appear in one chapter altogether. What? Mean they're not just always separate? No. Sometimes they're actually together. Look at John chapter six. John chapter six. Just turn over a page there. John chapter six. And if you look at verse starting with verse thirty seven and then go to forty and then forty four, forty seven, and sixty five, you see this progression. You see this progression. Verse thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. All that the Father gives me. He makes a choice. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. There we go. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Truly, truly, I say to you in verse 47, it says, he who believes has eternal life. And then 65, and he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Whoa. The sovereignty of God, the free will of man, both in the same place, both taught, both true, both operational. We must not conclude that God is unjust just because he chooses to bestow grace on someone but not everyone. God can't be measured by human judgment on what is fair or not fair. Can a fallen, sinful creature judge an unfallen, eternally holy, infinite God? Of course, the answer is no. That is pride. That is pride. Psalms 50, verse 21 It says this, it made this accusation, it made this charge. You thought that I was just like you. (laughs) That's how man sometimes, we expect you, God, to operate just like we do. You're just like us. God isn't. God isn't us. He isn't a human being on steroids, okay? He is totally different, above and beyond all of that. So, 
our responsibility is to take the gospel to the world. That's why Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1 are all so valid. We must leave foreknowledge, election, and predestination up to God and be obedient. And be obedient. And be obedient. Well, that brings us to the last part. And that is, why is the sovereignty of God such a great blessing? Why is it such a great blessing to us? Three things. First of all, it brings comfort. Okay? We read earlier Psalms 18, verse 30, when it says, Our God is perfect. He is holy, just, and righteous, and good. It is comforting that He is the one who is orchestrating all things for good. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands. But how many of you would like it if I were in control of everything? I didn't see any hands go up. So, okay, that's a mute point. All right. Okay. No. And how many of you, if you said, I want to be in control, would I want you to be in control? I don't think so. I don't think so. I'd rather have a perfect God in control. Comforts. Great comfort. It also brings great confidence. We read earlier, Psalms 103:19. God reigns over everything and everyone, every moment. There is nothing, no, no one more powerful than he, along with his other attributes. There is nothing beyond his knowledge, his ability to direct and manage. And he is our heavenly father, and we are his children. You can have great confidence. You can have great confidence. And then, it brings courage. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I don't know why us pastors don't draw on this one more often. It's such an inspiring passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 30 to 31. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those and these whom he justified, he also glorified. It says in verse 30 to 31. It's the, uh, verse, uh, down to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? It says. Verse, drop down to verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? Is this a Baptist church or what? Can I get an amen out of that? Oh, that's sorry. Can I get an amen out of that? All right. Okay. You see? That's what can happen, you see? And we can have the courage to face tomorrow, like that great song says. Because he lives and because he is the one who is in control. Well, today God is calling you. You're here. You just heard. And God may be right now tweaking your heart. He's saying to you, you ought to listen to this. You ought to heed this. Maybe you ought to really accept this. You ought to really take this time to accept the gift of uh, God. Exercise your free will. Choose God. John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Starting with verse 12, it says this. It says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. 
In other words, those who choose to believe in that, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of who? God. You see? Today could be your day. But also, it's a moment for us who already know Christ to face our sufferings with greater confidence and courage, knowing that there is a purpose, meaning to bring glory to God, and if God is there, no one else can be against us. No one else can be against us. Our God is the sovereign ruler over everything and everyone. His rule is calibrated to bring him glory. His rule impacts our lives on many different levels. Because is a good God who permits evil. It's a good God who uses suffering for good. It is a good God who chooses, who chooses to, be, to save us while allowing us to choose and make a legitimate choice. Of if we will or not. And lastly. Because God is in control. And he cares for us. We can do what First Peter 5 says. We can cast our anxieties on him. We can cast our anxieties on him. Our God is a sovereign God. Let's pray. Father. Speak to us. Speak to us loudly. Speak to us softly. Speak to us lovingly. Speak to us in a commanding way. But Lord, may our lives be better. Because you are our sovereign God. In Jesus' name, amen.